Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn Awardner. And in this episode, my lovely friend, my clever friend, Claire Coleman, the investigative journalist, makes a very welcome return to the podcast. And one of the reasons I asked Claire to come back is because she really is very good at cutting through the BS, particularly when it comes to the beauty, health and wellness industries. So I would describe her as an investigative journalist because... Her role in many ways is when a brand or a business or someone makes a grand claim, Claire is the person who takes the time to do the research to figure out what's really behind that claim and whether there's any truth in it. And she has definitely uncovered and been the person who has found flaws in some of these grand claims that you and I might see in big marketing billboards. So she really does the work that I guess we all wish that we had time to do. She, I, I go to her all the time. If I read something and it scares me and I felt fall prey to clickbait, I will message her and send her the link to something and say, Claire, is this a load of nonsense or is this actually true? Because if it is, um, I need to throw X, Y or Z away. And she always comes back to me and says, ah, this or there's that report from so-and-so that backed that up, but then that's been disproven. So she really does know the full backstory to a lot of this nonsense and she's the first person to roll her eyes at clean beauty she's the first person to roll her eyes at a lot of things but when she rolls her eyes at something it's with good reason it's because she's spent hours researching she's spoken to the experts she's read the clinical trials she's looked at the clinical papers and so her eye roll is not just a huff and a puff it really does come from a place of authority so I'm really glad that she's back we talk a lot we talk about um all those things that you've probably read and I, well, I've read, should I use deodorant or will it give me breast cancer? Uh, we talk about animal testing. And these are things that I cannot believe that I didn't know. She just literally looked at me and was like, Emma, this, and then stated a fact and then looked at me as if to say, but I understand why you're confused because X, Y, and Z. She's just so interesting. You can tell there's so many revelations in here and I'm trying to keep them from you in the introduction so that Claire can tell you herself. But we cover so, so much ground. And also, I think it's really important to let you know that not only are the links to the things that we discuss in the show notes, but the links to get in touch with Claire are in the show notes. And Claire is very, very, very open to people contacting her in the way that I do on WhatsApp, where I say, Claire, I'm really scared that I'm going to make myself ill if I drink as much coffee as I am. And then she'll just send me the link to her paper and say, right, read this please and stop falling prey to clickbait which is something I am guilty of doing so I hope that you enjoy this show I hope that you enjoy her take on wellness I hope you enjoy her take on yeah the wellness industry because that's a really interesting topic and there's a lot of love for Dr Jen Gunter in this episode so enjoy that too if you enjoyed the shows with Jen Gunter but here she is making a really welcome return my friend my clever friend investigative journalist Claire Coleman
Claire Coleman making such a welcome return to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me back. I feel like we just talked so much rubbish last time. I'm delighted to be back and talk no, rubbish. It was so interesting. So Claire is my clever friend. Oh. So whenever I'm um, struggling with facts or I read something in the paper and it scares the bejesus out of me, oh, like, Claire, can I ask you a quick question? Can deodorant give me breast cancer? <laughs> and you're like, no, because this study says this and you shouldn't get caught up in all of that. So what I thought we would do actually with you is really just kind of cut through some of the bullshit. I am so happy to do that. Like that is my li- my life's work is cutting through bullshit. I like, you know, I feel like it should be on my business card. I'd love that. Do you ever feel just as a sort of side note that the fact that that is your your the thing you're best known for in the industry. Do you think that actually doesn't always make you the most popular and if I you struggle know with that, that doesn't always make me the most popular and I'm kind of okay with that I think the thing is that I always feel that my responsibility is to the people who are reading what I write mm. and I've always been very lucky in a lot of ways I know that you've talked with other guests about the pressures of working for magazines and being con- having to consider advertising mm. and most of my life I've written for newspapers and I have never been told that I can't write something that I wanted to write or that I have to write favorably about a brand or a product. And I feel very lucky and very privileged to have been in that position. Mm. Um, But I know that as a result, there are certain brands that don't talk to me. There are certain brands that don't even send me press releases. There are certain invitations that I don't get. But I'm okay with that. Like, as far as this, I didn't go into this to be liked. I didn't go into this because I kind of wanted to be the most popular person in the beauty industry. I went into it because I feel there is a lot of bullshit out there. Mm. And I think it's really difficult for people to pull apart what they should be listening to and what is valid and what is you know correct information and if there's anything that I can do to try and clarify things a little bit or to try and make things just a little bit more comprehensible I feel like that's what I want to do and that's a without sounding too cheesy a real privilege no it doesn't sound cheesy at all and just just to go back a little bit because actually we didn't cover this last time you came on would you just talk about your background and how you got into journalism and why this was the the niche and the kind of the the opening that you really wanted to go for? Okay, so I've always loved writing. And I think the minute I found out that writing about something and being paid for it was an option, that was something that appealed to me. Um, And so when I was looking at choosing my A-levels, I was trying to work out whether the A-levels that I chose would mean that I could go on to be a journalist. When I was looking at the degree course I did, I was looking at the same sort of thing. So I... Although I loved writing, I never really enjoyed English literature and I didn't do any English A-levels at all. I did A-levels in maths, further maths, chemistry and French, which is why I'm a total geek. Listeners, I did tell you she was my clever friend. Um, (laughs) And the reason why I did that was because I wanted to keep my options open because I didn't know when I started my A-levels what I wanted to do at university. And I knew that if I wanted to do a languages degree, then I could do that with just one language. But I knew that if I wanted to do a science degree, which I had thought I might want to do, I would have to have at least one science and maths Mm -hmm. or two sciences. So it was all about keeping my options open. And then when it came to university... I thought about doing a media studies degree, but then I thought, if I did that and I got to the end of it and decided I didn't want to be a journalist after all, I'd be a bit lumbered with something Mm. that was going to be no use. So my degree was in languages. Um, I studied French and Italian, Um, but I very nearly applied for a 
a natural sciences course. Um, so it was kind of, mm. which sounds so ridiculous um, because they seem so far apart, but they were both things that I was really passionate about. And I, the thing I find interesting about this is the future gazing. Because when I chose my A-levels, it was like, which teachers do I like? <laughs> we were sure like, well, when I come out of it, I want to be able to have this option available to me and that option available to me. And I'm just like, I really like Mrs. Riddell. I'm going to do her English. I, I've always been a geek. What can I say? <laughs> like, a sort and a great geek. I'm happy with that. Um, and then, yeah, so I did my... I. I throughout the whole my time at university I did um work on kind of the university paper I edited the college satirical gossip magazine that taught me a lot about how to lose friends and yes. <laughs> those sorts of things which was probably a useful journalism um lesson and then I applied for I think 40 jobs in my final year at university that were journalism jobs I panicked in my final year at university because I was looking at everyone around me who were going for these kind of milk round jobs and like graduate training schemes and stuff like that. And for some reason, I just never imagined myself on a graduate training scheme for a newspaper. Um, I actually applied for loads of jobs in advertising in my final year. And when I got to a second round interview with one advertiser, I actually had a complete freak out and panicked about the fact they might offer me a job because I realized that I didn't want to do advertising at all. I wanted to be a journalist. Um, and so fortunately, they didn't offer me the job. Uh, I got two weeks work experience on a website that was kind of ahead of its time. It was, I guess, an online magazine. It was mm. called peoplenews.com. It doesn't exist anymore. But it was the tail end of the top dot-com boom. And there were a lot of really brilliant people who had come from newspapers and magazines and who subsequently went back to them. And that was, for me, was amazing for a number of reasons. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I took two weeks work experience. I made myself indispensable and um, stayed for a year and a half. And then got made redundant. But because of the environment, I was writing so much more than I ever would have done right. if I'd been taken on yeah. as a junior at a magazine. And then when it all went tits up, I contacted everybody I knew in the industry who was still working, including my deputy editor from the website, Sasha Slater, who is now at The Telegraph. Um, at the time, she was at The Mail and she had taken um, over uh, the Monday section and she said, I need someone to come in one day a week and do research and admin for me. Will you do it? And I was like, absolutely, yes. <laughs> So I was doing that one day a week. I was temping at The Guardian and The Observer the rest of the time, who at the time had like an internal temping pool and they kind of trained you up on their computers and their systems. And when anyone who was in admin disappeared for a holiday or was off sick, they kind of drafted you in. And for me, as someone who loved newspapers, it was the most joyful job because one week I would be in production, taking calls from people who were not happy about the smudged ink in their paper. The next week I would be in display ads um, and realising that actually the advertising is what allowed the journalists to write the stuff. I worked at the oh. House of Commons. I worked on the comment department. I was, I mean, I say worked, I mean, I was the admin assistant. But to see inside a newspaper for me was fascinating. But what I think we always come back to with you is that you're always thinking about the end user. You're always thinking about the reader. Whereas I think, even from what you've said, it's reminding me of when I started out in journalism and you can become a little bit too in, inward focused mm -hmm. on like the newspaper and the advertisers. I worked for a very highly commercial magazine. So I was always acutely aware of who was advertising mm -hmm. and who wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, wait, I mean, I now I've seen some recent tweets actually from journalists saying it's getting crazy. And that was actually what I was used to yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. 
which is obviously really sad, but it just means that it's spread a lot wider because uh, magazines are having a tougher time and yeah. they need to be funded. But when did you, was there a moment when you realised or you, the, the end user, the reader became so important to you? Because to me, when I think about your writing, you are always thinking about the person who is perhaps helpless, but wants to be informed. I and think... you try and present it in a way that is manageable, digestible, fair, honest. Yeah, I mean, I think I never intended to get into beauty journalism. I think if you had told my mum when her kids were teenagers that one of her kids was going to write about lipstick and the other one was going to be a lawyer, she would have never pegged it the way around that it ended up. Um, I didn't care about makeup in the same way that my sister did. You know, my sister had 15 different mascaras and could tell you why every single one of them did differently. I put makeup on, but I didn't care about it. And the thing that got me interested in it was... Um, when I was working at the Mail, and I think a lot of entry jobs in um, newspaper journalism are kind of like put together a panel of five lipsticks, put together a panel mm. of five fake tans. And so that was kind of like my way into beauty. And when you start doing that, and when you start seeing press releases, and I started seeing stuff about skincare and the claims that were being made, and I think that was where I became interested in it because I felt, and it's very different now, this is going back kind of 15 plus years. Nobody seemed to be questioning the claims that were being made by brands. Nobody seemed to be saying, well, if this is happening, what's the mechanism by which it is happening? Mm-hmm. Or how can you prove that this is doing what you say it's doing? And that what's was an example of that, just to really um, put that into oh, people's yeah, minds. I mean, like, I'm just trying to think about 15 years where I feel like ridiculous claims were being made about reduction in wrinkles, per- percentage reduction in wrinkles. And no one was saying... Permanent lip plumping virus. <laughs> yeah, all of these. And no one was saying... Well, okay, so if you're saying you can reduce wrinkles by 50%, essentially show me you're working. Like, mm. I want to see how you're making these claims. Like, who's taking the measurements? How many people have you taken the measurements on? And I feel that beauty journalism today is a lot more kind of interrogational about those, is that word? About those sorts of things. Um, but back then it really wasn't. And that was the thing that, with my geeky science and maths background, really appealed to me because... You know, I saw so many people, my mother, my grandmother, my sister, friends of mine, who were so passionate about beauty and Mm. so interested in what they were buying. And certainly older women who, you know, were looking for this new miracle product. And I, I did feel that they weren't being served. I did feel that there was no one interpreting the marketing for them. Um, although I don't think I could necessarily have articulated that at the time. Okay, question for you. Is there a miracle product? Or can there ever be a miracle product? Oh my God, your face is telling me so. <laughs> um, Honestly, listen, I don't really... the wicked grin <laughs> that just passed over Claire's face is amazing. Um, I don't really believe in miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of skincare and aging, I think... It's such a multifactorial issue, if you're going to call it an issue. Mm. There are so many things that go into why we look the way that we do and the changes that happen over time that I just think there is no one single silver bullet. I'm excited by a lot of the technologies that are around. Um, I'm excited by 
what we are starting to know about genetics. I'm excited by what we're starting to know about probiotics. I'm like, all of these things I think are really interesting. But I kind of think we need to take a view where we're hovering above all of this and realize that we are only on the threshold of our knowledge of so much of Mm. these things, so many of these things. Um, I think they may all have a role to play in the future, but I don't think we know enough about any of them at the moment to be able to say, you know, bingo, here's the cream that you need that's going to take 10 years off you, because I don't think anything is. I think increasingly it's going to be about prevention. I think there are things that you can do to improve the texture of skin, the tone of skin, and all Mm. of those sorts of things. And we know that that's the case. Like, we know that there are proven ingredients out there. I'm not convinced that there's ever going to be a miracle. Sorry. It just... When I think about it, when I think about the idea that somebody brings out a cream and it suits everyone and it's an anti-aging in that kind of, it will reverse the signs of aging. I think if we were all using the same thing, how boring. Like, that's my idea of a dystopian future. Just like, we One all cream. just use the same cream and the same colour lipstick. And I think, but it, but what, what comes into it, which I know is something you're really passionate about, is that there's now so much choice mm-hmm. that people women especially because they're marketed out very aggressively by a lot of beauty companies mm-hmm. end up expecting a miracle yeah i mean and i think that is part of the problem i think that there is a big disjunct between the scientists and researchers and the marketing department um and i think that's a problem and like you say there is so much choice and i'm really pro choice like i am absolutely for anyone picking any product that they like but i want women to be making an informed choice and that's the thing i'm constantly being accused of being anti-expensive brands or i'm I'm not anti-expensive brands i just want you to know what you're paying for Mm. i want you to know that if you're spending 300 pounds on a cream you're not necessarily going to get a product which is 10 times better than a 30 pound cream and that you know the money that you're paying is for the advertising the you know swanky kind of yeah packaging Mm. the you know counter in an expensive market a, a department store like all of those things are important and if for you being treated like royalty and being given, mm. you know, a glossy bag which has got a wrapping paper and tissue paper inside as well as a product is important to you. Like, all power to you. Mm. But know that that's what you're paying for. Mm. Like, that's what's really important to me. It's not about what's in the jar. Mm. That's, the, that's the key. I do think that's really important. And I do... Th- but then, do you know, I always come back to something Alison Young said to me on this podcast. And Alison's obviously a doyen of the beauty industry and I yeah. love her dearly. And... She's she's obviously been speaking to men and women for years about how they look after their mm-hmm. skin. And she sort of roughly speaking said that people fall into two camps and there's the people who like the luxurious experience who might. So let's just as an example, there may be the Declior mm-hmm. fan who love layering the aromescences and the balms and all of that kind of stuff. And they're looking after, they're hydrating essentially and pampering their skin. And then you've got the people who fall into the camp of, well, I want to use hardcore active ingredients that won't be as pleasurable to use, that might actually feel a bit boring to use. Because let's face it, putting on Retalon at night is not... No, a... it's not a luxury experience, is it? I've lost you. Say something into the mic? It's not a luxury... Oh, no, you're back, you're back. <laughs> <laughs> at what point did you lose me? I'm concerned. I don't know, I don't know. You just, I lost you. Um, yes, so... The, using the sort of high performance active ingredient products isn't as sexy 
No, God, no, it's not. I mean, it just like, it feels very work a day a lot of the time. And mm. I know that a lot of the products I put on don't feel like ritual, don't feel like mm. experience in the way that a lot of women would want mm-hmm. would want from their, from their um, routines. Where did we get the idea that it has to be a ritual? I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like bathing rituals have been a thing since mm. sort of ancient times. Um, there's a part of me that thinks women want it to be ritual because it's the time that they get for themselves, and I totally mm. get that. Um, I know that Anastasia Achilleos told me that I put stuff on my skin, but I don't touch my skin. And, and I totally believe in the power of massage. Mm. And I totally believe in the power of touch when it comes to skin. And I probably should spend more time kind of applying my functional product with a little bit more care. But they tend to just go into the skin and do what they're supposed to do. Like, there's not a lot of slip and no. movement. And If I want ritual and relaxation, I just get into a bath, to be honest. I know people hate baths, but I'm a big bath fan. <laughs> do people hate baths? Some people hate baths. They think, like, it's lying in filth. I mean, you know, I get that. I'm okay with that. It's my own filth. <laughs> Mud bath, any kind of bath. I must admit, I'm not a big fan of treatments. I hate being fussed with. I hate it. I have to be, sed- I almost have to be sedated or slightly I'm quite drunk ticklish. to have a So like when I first started out and I was going and reviewing spas, they always used to put me in for a massage and I used to tense up trying not to giggle when I was being massaged. <laughs> I've got a lot better. I did actually at one point try to have th- hypnotherapy to stop giggling while I was being massaged. That's ridiculous. No, no, did really you pay good. for that? No. <laughs> no, it was a friend of a friend who was um, training as a hypnotherapist and he needed kind of like a certain number of cases. And I was like, please don't laugh at me. I would love to be hypnotised not to be ticklish during a massage I mean that's really specific <laughs> I, know. I know I think it was possibly a bit of a big ask mm. um, I did enjoy speaking to him though and like you know going into a little bit of a daze every week or so what do you think about something like hypnotherapy because actually I mean I've, there's a lot of things specifically I want to talk to you about but things like alternative therapies or would you say hypnotherapy is an alternative therapy <gasps> you see when I spoke to him I was expecting a lot of kind of woo-woo stuff. And actually what he talked to me about was the way that the brain works and the way that hypnotherapy works with the brain. Mm. I, like, I don't dismiss it. I think I've become a lot more open-minded about those sorts of things as I've got older. Mm. Um, again, because I feel like it's about choice. And I keep... I'm just checking the mic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Again, because I feel like it's about choice, but I feel like it should be about informed choice. There are certain things that I dismiss out of hand. Homeopathy is one of them. Is Um, that because you could just have some tap water? (laughs) (laughs) And a sugar cube, pretty much, yep. Um, But just for somebody listening who might be, why do you dismiss dismiss homeopathy? Because... What's the principle of homeopathy? So as far as I can make out, and I'm sure there are people who know far more about this than I do, but as far as I can make out, you have these things which are made up of a minute fraction of something which is diluted several times over, which is said to be a um, cure or a solution to certain things. Yeah, And I just... I don't, no one has ever been able to explain to me the science Mm. of why something so dilute should have any impact whatsoever. And I don't disbelieve that there are some people who have found that it works for them. 
I am a huge believer in the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. And I don't and I don't knock the placebo effect as being useful in treating certain conditions. And we know that the mind has a huge role to play in um, physical health as well. So I get why some people use it. I can't, in all honesty, recommend it. I did a podcast on with somebody talking about homeopathy specifically, and it just really didn't sit well with me because I thought, I, I'm not convinced, and I was the one asking the questions. I actually mm. took it down, and you, you know I don't take my podcast down. Wow. I felt that str- I felt strongly enough about it. Mm-hmm. It's not that I wouldn't revisit it, because I would, but again, like you, I would need more yeah. than just your word yeah, yeah, yeah. for it. Because yeah. that's when I begin to get into the hocus pocusy bit. It's like what Jen Gunter came on the show and talked about when she talked about the wel- wellness industry, which I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I love that podcast so much, and I love that you read out my question in full. Thanks so much. <laughs> I was totally fangirling over her response. <laughs> also, when I said, "Hey Claire, is there anything you'd want to ask Jen?" The length of the WhatsApp that came back and the number of capitals is just brilliant. But um, I guess I I've, ne- I've never questioned in the way that you have. I'm quite skeptical I'm like yeah yeah but I then don't back it up with asking the right (laughs) questions but it's more of one of those things you go to a presentation you know when you just think as Marty McFly would say or was it Biff I smell bullshit Mm -hmm. but you can't really put your finger on why yeah I've had that recently with actually something I keep getting approached by this brand and they really really want me to talk about their product and I'm like can you send me the clinical trials and I look at the clinical trials and I think well actually it looks convincing Mm -hmm. but then I send them to an expert and they're like no this is nonsense Mm -hmm. I'm like but why I need to know why yeah so if I'm being bamboozled by science it's very easy Mm -hmm. like not everybody has a Claire Coleman that they can just honestly everyone can have a Claire Coleman I am at features journo on Twitter and Instagram and I so welcome people who don't understand something asking questions I'm not always going to know the answer but I probably know someone who will and that I would far rather someone came to me and asked a question about something that they're not entirely sure is right or that they want more information on than they just went and googled it and stumbled across a website that was trying to sell them something so which is brilliant, and do contact her because she's not joking. She really is good about getting back to people. So when Jen came on the show and she talked about the wellness industry, she said it's basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but let's just call it a con because they're selling you something that actually will do you harm, but they're telling you that it's going to do something good for you. And I said, and me, and it's my naivety, not maybe, it's definitely my naivety, I thought, well, if somebody has tried a vaginal cleanse and believes that it did them good, I can't criticise them for then recommending it to somebody else. Because if I like an eye cream Mm -hmm. and I feel like it gives me a good result, the first thing I'll do is tell people. Yeah. The idea that by monetizing that vaginal cleanse or egg that you stick up yourself, that's the thing that makes it sinister. Mm Mm-hmm by not then doing the research and actually checking that like, you might've had a good experience, but what if that could do somebody else harm? I'd never really thought about it from that perspective. I always thought the wellness industry was just people who it had worked for them and they wanted to share their messaging. I'd never yeah. really associated a darkness to it, but mm-hmm. Jen really opened my eyes to it. Yeah. Where do you stand on it? Cause this is obviously something you've investigated a lot. I think, I mean, it's the reason why when brands send me a product and say, what did you think of it? 
I normally say either I didn't try it or it doesn't matter what I think of it because my thing has never been about how did I find this product? Mm. It's been about what ingredients are there in the product? Um, what have you got to show me that this end product does have the effect that you say it does? And mm. how have 50 other women responded to it rather than just me? Because I understand, and there are some brilliant people out there whose journalism is based on their personal experience. And I totally am with you. You know, there are products that I do try and say, I think this is amazing and I've tried it. But it's very rare that I try a product that I think is amazing that doesn't also have clinical trials to back it up Mm. or like a broad spectrum of information about the ingredients in it and the way that it's been formulated. That means that I feel like I can confidently recommend it to someone. And there are certain things that I will try if they are hairstyling products or color cosmetics, anything that is going to give an immediate result. um, I can, I will try it and I will kind of potentially write about, you know, color payoff or texture Mm. of something. But I feel with skincare, especially where something is going to anything that's going to have a long term effect, what I think of it is not nearly as important as what a bunch of other women who have used it think of it um, in a clinical trial. So that would be over how much. Right. OK, so this is a really interesting thing. I've been to launches before where they've said they've done tests and you look at the small print and it's like eight women or something. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is like, OK, I'm listening to this podcast and I'm going to like have my eyes a little bit wider open mm-hmm. to see things that maybe are there that I'm not currently seeing. Mm-hmm. If you see on the bottom of some advertising said 97% of women mm-hmm. in a clinical trial, what's a good base number? Or is it... I've asked this question so many times of statisticians who are far better than me. Um, it depends... Um, this sounds really complicated. It depends what magnitude of change that you're looking for. Because if you're looking for a really small difference, then a relatively small number of people can be used. I think, I feel like I need to look this up, actually. I'm not going to talk about statistics with any authority. Okay. Um, But if it's 10 people? If it's, I mean, yeah, if it's 10 people, I mean, there are things like confidence intervals and T-tests, which I vaguely remember from A-level statistics. Sorry, Mrs. (laughs) McIntyre, I don't have them to hand. Um, I mean, I generally... I'd like to see 100 people, Mm. I mean, which is a bit of a number that I've plucked out of the air, which I know that you shouldn't do. But no, I mean, 10 women being tested doesn't really tell me an awful lot, I don't think. Well, moving away from statistics. Thank you. (laughs) I'm really grateful for that. It's because I wanted to talk to you about critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Because um, one of the things Jen said on the podcast, which just blew my mind, because it just, it's like, God, that seems so obvious is she said, if you have a health issue, don't Google it. Go to a website that is an authority on that, like a medical authority on it, Mm -hmm. and search within the confines of that space because that's asking a trusted person who is going to come back to you Mm -hmm. with helpful things. Mm -hmm. The majority of health issues, if you Google them, on that first page, there is going to be something that is probably going to say cancer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's because it's top hit. Yeah. And so... It was really interesting. But then I was like, well, how can, other than that, how can people use their critical thinking to cut through the BS? Yeah. Like, how can they... And I was thinking about that when we were talking, when you sort of mentioned it previously, because I feel like in the beauty industry, it's really difficult to get objective information from someone who isn't trying to sell you something. And I think that's really difficult. And I'm fascinated when I talk to brands and they're saying things like, 
oh, you know, we feel like there's a massive education piece that needs to be done around X, Y, and Z. And, you know, what brands do you think are doing education really well? And I'm just like, people aren't going to brands for Mm. education. People are picking people who they trust and whether those people are on Instagram, whether they are journalists that they trust. And those are the people that they're looking to for education and information. Because I think it's really difficult to find those sorts of objective sources. And part of the reason that it's difficult to find, as you will know, is because people have to make a living. Mm. Like, I would love to have a website that is an objective source of information. But the only way that I can do that is by being paid by someone. Mm. And I can't take advertising. And I can't do sponsored content. So I can't pay my bills if that's what I'm doing. Mm. And until I win the lottery... That would be brilliant. If I won the lottery, that is totally what I would do. With your knowledge of stats, <laughs> I don't hold out much hope. I'm not holding out any hope whatsoever. Euro Millions is yet to come my way. <laughs> yeah, how many times would you have to enter it in order to win, Claire? I, I haven't been struck by lightning yet either, and I think that's probably more likely. Well, well today, the weather, <laughs> today the weather is geared up for it, maybe on the way out. I'll buy a lottery ticket and get struck by lightning. Um, so yes, critical thinking. There isn't really a good resource but I do think what is great and obviously we know a lot of them is the people who've worked in the industry for a long time yeah who are like screw this and they have created their own platforms where they cut through the bs yeah yeah I mean the people that I want to talk to are cosmetic scientists Mm -hmm. those are the people that you know I would say follow on Instagram those are the people people like beauty brains who I think are brilliant um at really cutting through the crap Mm -hmm. and and also responding to reader questions Mm -hmm. where they're saying you know I don't understand this or is this true I've read this and I think that you know, those sorts of people are a really good resource because it is very difficult to find people who are utterly independent for, for a wide variety of reasons. But then the beauty industry is sort of this weird thing of, on the one hand, I will get completely lost in a Pat McGrath watching makeup video Instagram hole where I spend like 25 <laughs> minutes just watching like those sort of heavily filtered videos of her mm-hmm. putting on eyeshadow. And... I'm just like, well, I want it, I want it immediately. I have no questions about mm-hmm. it. I just want it. Yeah. But then at the same time, when it comes to things like skincare, I, again, I can get caught in that thing of someone says it's great, therefore I'm just going to whack it on my skin and not even look at the inky list. <laughs> but that's changed a lot, hasn't it? Would you say I think it's really much changed. more like, I'm turning that bottle over? Yeah. I mean, there there is research that suggests that people are much more interested in ingredients. But I think the success of brands like The Inky List, of brands like The Ordinary, Garden of Wisdom, mm. all of those ones that are like, these are really difficult brands to engage with. This is not the moisturizer. This is not the serum. This mm. is vitamin C or, you know, salicylic. And like words that I do not think were in most women's vocabulary yeah. 10, 15 years ago. So I definitely think there is a hunger to know more about provenance of ingredients about what different ingredients do um and the thing that i worry about is where people get their information from and i mean that's true across a whole range of things i don't think this is exclusively a beauty issue at the moment Mm. i feel like it's a politics issue as well and you know where people get their information from and critical thinking and i think the thing about critical thinking the questions that you have to ask aren't actually that hard and these are the questions that i really wish you know they taught kids in school like i really and maybe they do apologies if there are any teachers out there <laughs> not that close to kids in school we have some great teachers who listen actually brilliant um but then i'm sure they're teaching their kids this which is basically when you look at some information 
interrogate where it's come from, interrogate who's written it, interrogate where they've got their facts from and interrogate in whose interest that piece of information is out there. Mm. And I think those are not difficult things to Mm. do because it's like, oh, well, the beauty brand wrote this and they wrote this because they want me to buy their product. Like that's Mm. like, that's where I think what critical thinking really boils down to. Um, I'm going to take it off the beauty industry for a second just to talk about critical thinking Mm -hmm. and talk about interrogating the information and where it comes from because I'm going to talk about Michael Jackson. (laughs) Believe me, I'm making a point here. Okay. Because um, the documentary came out earlier this year. Yep. Was it Finding Neverland? Mm -hmm. No. Leaving Neverland. And I watched it and was like, ways bang to right, bloody hell, like proper, you know, um, couch potato judge and jury. Mm -hmm. And then I spoke to a friend who actually, for various reasons, has seen uh, behind the curtain on that one a bit, has actually seen some of the transcripts from Mm -hmm. the court cases and was like, the guy got off because there was like reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And there's a, like, it wasn't some sort of conspiracy. What you've watched is a very one-sided documentary mm-hmm. and you've literally listened. And basically what he said was, is it's like going to a trial and only listening to one side mm-hmm. and making your judgment. Yeah. And it just kind of basically lit a fuse in my brain mm-hmm. of, God, that's actually what happens with everything. Like every single documentary I watch now, like when was the last time I saw something and thought, but what about that piece of information or that's not particularly balanced? Yeah, And... On a grander scale, do you think there's not just about the beauty industry, but do you just think there's a lot more there's a lot more scope for propaganda? Um, yeah, I th- I think there is, but I think also it's because I think part of that is down to social media mm-hmm. and the algorithms, and you know it's not just social media; it's you know the way that Netflix suggests things that you want mm-hmm. to watch, and all of these sorts of things they actually narrow our world view because we don't tend to follow people on Twitter who we don't agree with. Mm-hmm. We don't seem to tend to follow people on Instagram who share views that are not ours, and. I feel that we kind of get corralled into this space where our own views are repeated back to us. And, you know, that's often an issue that I get when people talk to me about newspapers. And I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the media is or what it should be. And I always say to someone, you know, if you're sitting here and I'm sitting there and something happens in that corner over there, your view of things and my view of things are going to be very different. Mm. Both of them are probably going to be valid, But the perspective is going to be completely different. And the thing that I love about the media in this country is whether you disagree or agree with a particular newspaper, you have an option, you have Mm. an alternative. And the one thing that I think people can do is listen to viewpoints that are different from their own. Mm. And I think that is where we seem to be missing out on something at the moment. Did you see uh, Barack Obama wrote something about that or uh, spoke at something where he said, um, we've, we've got this new trend of pointing out where someone's wrong, but yeah. not really, I forget what the entire thing was, but he just said there's this whole trend of just going, look at what you said, you're completely wrong, but that's where the discussion ends, yeah. basically. Yeah, and I feel like not only do we lack critical thinking, we lack the ability to debate and argue and work out whether someone might have a valid point it's Mm. so rare that you ever see someone saying oh well you know your argument has now convinced me um Mm. I feel people become very entrenched in their positions in everything whether you're talking about 
clean beauty or you know the Tories it's like... well actually you that that is a subject that is at the top of my list is clean beauty because this is something that I want to explore in far greater detail than a podcast in 2020 but I do mm-hmm. think you're a good person to actually talk to her about also re michael jackson i do not know what went on there i'm just using that as an example of <laughs> the media that i have consumed and the conclusions i came to and how it wasn't necessarily the full picture um don't at me <laughs> yeah don't at me um but clean beauty is huge and i have um spent time with people who aren't women particularly who aren't in the beauty industry who are telling me that this is something that they're thinking about doing, making sure that their beauty products are clean and chemical free, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to then engage with them in a rational conversation. Mm-hmm. And I find it quite difficult because you can say, well, water's a chemical, mm-hmm. but your head is being beaten against a brick wall. And yet uh, people like Sam Farmer, people like Caroline Hirons, people like you, you know that this clean beauty is a... Well, what would you describe it as? Is, is it false? Is clean beauty a thing? I I would love to know what would happen if you asked 50 different people what they meant by clean beauty, yeah, because yeah. I think you would get a whole range of responses. And that is my first issue with it. It's being used as a marketing term that means absolutely nothing whatsoever. Mm. Nobody is defining it. The people who are defining it are defining it in their own interests. Mm. And so... You, there are some people who think that it means that a product is vegan. There are some people who think that it means that a product is produced sustainably. There are some people who think that it means that it's organic. It has no legal definition whatsoever. Mm. There's no consensus even within the industry about what it means. And so I really resent it. It's one of those things that doesn't help anyone. Mm. I don't feel like it helps anyone make a decision about whether that product is the product that they want. Do you think it's come off the back of clean eating? I think clean eating, clean sleeping, I mean, all of those things, which I kind of think are problematic in their own mm. rights. Um, and they're kind of a lazy shorthand for something. They, And I also, I resent the use of a word that by definition demonises people and things that are not mm. under that banner because the corollary of clean is dirty. Mm. So what... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. What are you saying? If a brand isn't claiming to be clean, does that make them dirty? And I just, I, I do have a real, real issue with it. If someone is listening to this and they have maybe bought into the clean beauty Mm -hmm. thing and they have maybe stopped using certain products Mm -hmm. and have embraced particular brands, Mm -hmm. what, what would you say to them? I'd want to know what their priorities were when they were buying their products. Mm. And 
I'd want to, if the words that they used were about chemicals, were about nasties, which are two words that I hate being used about mm. the beauty industry, um, I would want to know what they meant by that. Um, I do feel really strongly that there is very good legislation within the EU, which we are still a part of at the moment, mm -hmm. that protects consumers. And I have absolutely no problem with someone deciding based on the research that they have done, which I might not necessarily agree with, that they don't want a specific ingredient in their product. But I will not have any truck with them demonising that ingredient. Right. I remember years ago, a beauty editor saying to me, what ingredient on a list is a red flag for you? And there are no red flags for me because if a product is on sale in this country, I feel confident that due diligence has been done on the ingredients in that product. Mm. And if you have sensitive skin and you know that you have a certain reaction to an ingredient such as sodium sulfate, then look at the ingredient list and don't pick a product that's got mm. sodium sulfate in it. That's fine. I mm. don't, you know, I'm not judging you on that. But if you have in your head, because some beauty brand has told you that there are 10 nasties or certain ingredients that are or going six. to harm you or whatever, <laughs> you know, lose count. But that's the thing. There's no ingredient number. Mm. Then I like I can't respect that. I can't I can't feel that that is a good basis for making a decision. It's it's reminding me a little bit of um, terms and words that get used and thrown around as mm -hmm. if we all know what they mean. And in the beauty industry, it's parabens and sulfates mm -hmm. right now. But I could turn on the television now and say, Hey Claire, before you go, let's watch a bit of daytime TV, and we will probably see an advert for a yogurt drink that would sort out our bifacilicus bacteria you know do you know what I yeah. mean and we were just nod along going yeah yeah, yeah 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 no my bacteria definitely needs to be rejigged oh yeah I mean like five years ago ten years ago liposomes that was the whole thing everything <laughs> in beauty was about liposomes can someone tell me what liposome is I mean is that the, the hard bit that makes it slow time release <laughs> I think it's something to do with sort of fat, you know, binding or oil binding or something. I mean, like, I don't even know. None of these things mean anything, do they? Oh, lipo, yeah, fat, obviously. But, yeah, I mean, and I just, yeah, things end up in common parlance. And I think I end up being more aware of them because, because I write for a newspaper, because my stuff is edited by people who aren't necessarily beauty literate, right. I find, you know, it now trips off the tongue. I don't just say this contains an ingredient that can promote the growth of collagen within the skin. I say this contains an ingredient that can promote the growth of collagen, which is the protein that makes mm. skin springy and bouncy. Yes. And, you know, these, and I do think we should probably... Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Even collagen... Even collagen, just like everyone goes, oh, yeah, I know. Oh, I think my collagen's depleted. Collagen, antioxidants, like all of these words. Because collagen is the springy... The, one of the proteins yeah. that is in the skin that helps it look... Vitamin C is like uh, for skin scaffolding and like... <laughs> we use them, these terms all the time, yeah. But... Yeah, but it's just like, yeah, I need vitamin C. Yeah. But it's that thing of, yes, but why? Yeah. And it, I mean, you know, that is partly because we are... These, this stuff is marketed at us and, mm. you know... Even sometimes I, when someone's like, niacinamide. So, and I was like, yeah, great skin ingredient. And they're like, well, what does it actually do? And I'm like, hang on a moment. I'm just going to have to go back it's and look that up. It's a vitamin B derivative. Exactly. It's got energy in it. It's good for exactly. poor sides. Exactly. All of these things. But yeah, it's like, it's a lot of information. Mm. 
Um, but look, can we just talk specifically about parabens and sulfates, please? Because they're the ones that I will get a press release or someone will say, oh, hi, Emma. Um, really want to know what you think about such and such a product we sent over. Um, obviously, the fact that it's paraben and sulfate free is a real selling point. And I'm like, why? It's a real selling point because we have got to the point where misinformation, I believe, has triumphed over fact. And oh, that is the pull quote. <laughs> And it it makes me really sad. And it I I was at a presentation from a massive beauty brand a couple of years ago, and they were launching a range of new products, and they were talking about them being paraben free. And this is a brand that has I know invested hugely in research and development, values science really highly, and a lot of the time trades on science and scientific fact. Mm. And when I put my hand up and said, "Why have you made them paraben free?" <laughs> First of all, did all the blood drain <laughs> from their faces? They don't invite me to things and think I'm not going <laughs> to ask ask questions these days. Um, and I said, "Why? Why have you gone paraben free?" And they basically said that battle's lost. Because consumers believe that parabens are bad and essentially we're a company that wants to sell product. And so if consumers want to buy a product without parabens, we're going to make a product without parabens and sell it to them. And that really made my heart sink because Mm. I think if people who are trading on science won't stand up for science, you know, that is a battle lost. And it makes me really sad. Um, The paraben thing, to recap really quickly, Mm. if I can try and remember all the details of it, was around the idea that one study, I believe at the University of Reading, was f- had which had found parabens in breast cancer tissue, breast tissue from women who had had breast cancer, mm. um, had subsequently been shown to be flawed. But this has been picked up, and. Sam Farmer has a brilliant section on his website about why he believes that certain types of paraben are still the safest way to preserve the integrity of a product. And he was also one of the first people to explain to me that the problem with demonising parabens meant that brands had suddenly started looking around for a new inexpensive preservative that they could use in its place. So that just to recap, a paraben is a preservative. Sorry, yes, a paraben is frequently used as preservative to make sure that, you know, Your the integrity... Your go off. Yeah, exactly. And doesn't get contaminated with anything or anything like that. And so a lot of people had started using an ingredient which people knew could sensitize skin and as a result most people only ever use that ingredient in wash off ingredients in in wash off products so Mm. like shampoos or Mm. cleansers or whatever but because they were desperate to replace parabens with something effective and inexpensive that ingredient started to be introduced into leave-on products even though it was really known Mm. that that could potentially be a problem and so if you are sensitive to mi um then i can't remember the complete name of it it's Mika something name. or other um if you're sensitive to mi then you are going to have a problem if mi is used in more and more products because people aren't using parabens mm. and there has been a huge rise apparently in the reports of sensitivity to um, products because of this sudden desperate switch out for of parabens which 
I don't believe are problematic for something which is known to be problematic. Mm. And that the talking about the uh, breast cancer uh, cell and that study has since been proven to be flawed you said yes before. exactly and I seem to remember and I should have it in front of me because I should have known that you were going to ask me about this I seem to remember that the tissue from uh, breasts which were not cancerous also contained parabens which suggests that there was a flaw to the study or that parabens are not in any way implicated in breast cancer so you're my mate and I, I can am. text you whenever I like you can and yet when I had the scare earlier on this year, what was the first thing that I did, even though... Oh, you stopped using deodorant, I stopped you? using aluminium deodorant. Yeah. I get that. Because I mean, I'm using is... it again now, I hasten to add. <laughs> she doesn't smell. Emma needs, <laughs> FYI. Emma needs a 48-hour <laughs> deodorant. That's just fact. Um, but I freaked out. When I was waiting I to that. have the test, I was like, oh my God, what if I've been wrong this whole time? I get that. And, and I totally understand that because these things are not just factual issues. They're emotive issues as mm. well. And that's where it's really problematic because it's very difficult when either you are desperate or, you know, it's why we see diets aimed at people who have cancer mm. or you know people who are trying to conceive being given huge amounts of information about this that might help them and all these sorts of things and when people are in those situations and people are desperate to feel that they've done everything that they mm. can they will grasp at any straws that there are and look for any reasons that they can why things are or aren't happening and I get that I'm, you know, I'm not a robot. I'm, yeah. you know, um, and I don't know how to say to someone that if your husband's dying of cancer, you shouldn't do every single thing mm. that you can. But then it's not them that I hold responsible. It's people peddling information mm. that is not factually based. But it is. It's that hope. It's the it's the hope that people are given. Mm -hmm. Exactly that by doing things that actually could make their situation worse. I think that's what Jen was saying yeah. as well, is like the people who opt for alternative therapies, particularly with cancer over chemo, mm -hmm. actually shorten their... Yeah. Well, they really... Yeah, no, I, spoke to, I spoke to someone who was a doctor whose um, friend had decided when she was initially diagnosed with a very curable form of breast cancer to go the alternative way. And this woman said... You know, I told her what I thought. It caused problems between us. And two years later, when she realized that her alternative way of doing things wasn't working, her breast cancer had spread to a point where it was no longer curable. And I went to her funeral last month. Oh, gosh. And I find that devastating. But I really want people to know that story because I want people to know that the result of not looking at evidence-based stuff is that people die. Okay, that story... <laughs> That story is really hard to hear, obviously, and I'm sure people listening will think this. And one of the things that hopefully we're, we're trying to do in this episode is cut through the fear mongering. Mm -hmm. we, keep, we keep saying bullshit, but what we mean is the fear mongering. Yeah. But that's really scary, what you've just said. That's absolutely terrifying. And I think the thing is that I, I don't have any problem with people looking at alternative therapies, but to choose an alternative therapy that has not been proven over a therapy that has, when you're talking about saving your life, to me just does not make mm. sense. And 
a lot of the alternative practitioners that I speak to who are responsible are the ones that say, I would never tell someone not to have chemotherapy, but I would tell them that alongside their chemotherapy, I can offer them acupuncture or Mm. supplements or dietary advice, which will support their body while they are going through that. Mm. But there are, they, these are the responsible people. These are the people, like I spoke to someone yesterday who has said, there are certain antioxidants that I would not suggest someone took while they were having um, chemotherapy because those antioxidants could protect the very cells that you're trying to destroy. Right, right. And you need alternative practitioners who have that level of responsibility mm. because I don't have any problem with there being complementary therapies as an adjunct to proven therapies mm but it needs to be done responsibly. Mm. And I think the thing that I always come back to is that, you know, if a certain therapy that was going to be cheaper than huge amounts of pharmaceuticals was going to give the same responses and give the same results, don't you think the NHS would want to be using it? Mm. Like, you know, if you could wave a sage stick over something, then... that's when big pharma conspiracy comes Yes, of course, of course. And I know that clinical trials are expensive and I know that there are certain instances in which it's not, you know, responsible to carry out clinical trials. But in this non-ideal world, I kind of feel like you have to clutch on to whatever, like truth there is out there and i know that not everyone sees their truth in the same way that i see mine um but mine is science and mine is evidence and i thought jen explained it really brilliantly on the podcast when she said if you buy a tablet an antidepressant tablet and you look at what's in it it will have what's what it says is in it to like 99 percent to within a, a, a variation that is allowable by law Mm -hmm. but what you are getting is what you are being told that you're getting Mm -hmm. but that's not the not the same for alternative therapies that are Mm -hmm. unregulated yeah yeah and i you know i don't think that there are no problems with the pharmaceutical industry Mm. but i kind of feel like you know it's like democracy it's the least worst option at the moment Unless we're going to have a benevolent dictatorship, which I'm happy to take over. (laughs) Listeners, we're recording this on the day of the general election in the UK. Uh, So politics is at the forefront forefront of of our minds. Literally every every time I uh, turn on my computer, there's some new alert. Um, Hugh Grant is is really, his Twitter feed is, did you see he had a massive row with Piers Morgan last night? Yes, I saw. Great fun. Um, Now... Because we are drawing to the end of our hour together, I wanted to make sure that I covered all things. And one thing I wanted to talk to you about is animal testing. Because I get asked this quite a bit. And I had, and I said to you beforehand, listeners, like Claire, we were making tea. And I said, whenever people ask me, I kind of freeze because I don't know the answer. And it's not something that is ever a subject I found to be particularly forthcoming. So I said to you, because we're doing it, right? Meaning we, meaning the beauty industry. And Claire shot me down so hard. So Claire, what's the score with animal testing in the beauty industry? Animal testing on beauty products has been banned in the UK since 1997. And I think the thing that I get really surprised by is that the number of people who don't know this, and I know that that's the case because I have exactly the same response that you gave me, which is whenever I say something, there are lots of people on Twitter who are like, I genuinely didn't know this. And 
I kind of feel that's the fault of the brands who say not tested on animals. Well, it's like, well, no, it's not because nobody is testing on animals. So it's been banned in the UK since 1997. It's been banned in the EU since 2009. And so I just, I, I'm kind of surprised that there, it feels like in the last few years, we've seen this resurgence of products claiming not to be tested on animals. Mm. And I know that part of that related to whether a product was sold in China. Yes. So Explain to give, what the China thing is. Okay. So to give a brief recap, um, although, so China had a thing which there were certain types of beauty products that had, if they were going to be sold in China, had to be tested um, and before they went to market. And some of that testing, the only tests that the Chinese government kind of recognized were animal tests there were other types of product that depending on where they were made or what types of product they were didn't have to be tested on animals when they went onto the market but there is something called post-market testing which is once a product is on sale in china if there are any queries about it the chinese government can as far as i understand it do their own tests on that product and hypothetically that could include tests on animals so there was a blanket belief that Essentially, if you chose to sell your products in China, even if you yourselves were, as a beauty brand were not testing your products on animals, you were creating a situation whereby your products could potentially be tested on animals. Oh, see, that's very interesting because I thought that if you were sold in China, you only got the green light to be sold if you partook of those tests but that's not the case that's not the case it's a hypothetical if they did further testing yeah if they did further testing interesting and i think that is now changing because as far as i am aware relatively recently as in this year there have been non-animal tests for um beauty products which have been accepted as valid Mm -hmm. by the chinese government and so i believe although i need to go back and double check this that from next year from 2020 any tests that are done on beauty products, um, both before and after they go on to sale um, in China, will be done not using animals. I need to double check that. Mm. But that's the impression that I've been given because of these tests being validated and agreed as being usable. Obviously, Claire's mentioned a lot of stuff in this episode, so we'll make sure the links go in the show notes. Um, So, okay, so people still ask me and I kind of, and you're right, I guess because like, I know makeup artists who will only work with with brands that don't test on animals. And I've written features with those people and they said, oh, please don't mention them. They, they, they test on animals. And so that, but they can't, that can't be correct can't, then. No, and I think the thing that's really difficult is that there are, it's, I believe that it's impossible to formulate a product using an ingredient that hasn't at some point been tested on an animal. I just don't think it's possible because there was animal testing that went on. Because like, of legacy testing. Yes, exactly. Of, yeah. And we can't, like, we can't pretend that didn't happen. But then I just, I don't believe that even the brands that shout about being most animal friendly can possibly be using ingredients that weren't at one point tested on animals. So I think you kind of have to draw a line under things and just accept that you are probably using a product that contains ingredients that 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever years ago, it that ingredient was tested on animals. But beauty, you know, we are not like putting lipstick in rat's eyes anymore. Like that just does not happen. Um, yeah, it, and it hasn't happened for over 20 years in the UK. That, okay. 
So that is yeah, mind blowing. So brilliant. when basically when you see on a product not tested on animals, I find that re- that suggests that there is a brand out there that is testing on animals that is sold in the UK. Right. That's not the case. Right. And the minute that a PR says to me that a product is not tested on animals, I pull them up on it. Mm. And I do. I send emails back saying that I think it's really disingenuous. <laughs> I mean, Sorry. as I said, <laughs> I am not one of the most loved people in the industry, but I'm OK with that. I'm just, I try so hard not to be controversial, as you know, privately. I kicked off yesterday on an email and I was like sent in and turned off my computer and was like, oh, God, why did I do that? Why did I do it? No, but you're, I mean, but no, you're, you're, this is why you're here. This is why you're so you. right in the industry because I've been in the industry for nearly 20 years and I'm sitting here learning about animal testing. And yet the whole time I've actually been a working journalist, there's been no animal testing in this country. Yet why, why is there, why has there never been a definitive answer? Why does a brand never give a definitive answer? Why is it not? just, but I've never been to a presentation or launch, not that I go to them all. And someone said, and it has been stated that that's the we case. We don't test on... No, Not, we don't. don't test on animals. Ob- like, even just a thing of, um, obviously, in the UK... You can't... You so... can't test on animals and haven't been able to since 1997. Like, that's never been stated to me before. Is that... But it's not a selling point, is it? I mean, I kind of think that... there. Are... to a journalist, it's an interesting oh, piece of information. Yeah, but I just think that... The people who talk about not testing on animals are trying to use it as a point of difference when it's not a point of difference. And so... Yes, that's what's yeah. sinister slash... Yeah, problematic. Misleading. Yeah. Problem- yeah, sinister's probably a bit too strong, but it is problematic. I'm happy with sinister. <laughs> I knew you would be. Um, what else, other than animal testing, is there something else that you feel is getting a lot of airtime that maybe, again, is misleading? Oh, goodness. Um... I mean, we've talked about clean beauty. We've talked about chemicals. We've talked about whether there can be a miracle cream. Mm. Um, Within the beauty industry at the moment, I just... I mean, it was the question that I asked Jen about helping people work out what their sources should be Mm. and about who you try and convince and who you are kind of, like, happy to leave as people who you're never going to convince. And Mm. I, you know... I kind of feel that we've covered that. But I also, I do, you know, I asked her that question because I genuinely feel helpless about it. I genuinely feel when people are talking about not vaccinating their children or whatever, I mean, moving away from beauty, but, you know, I feel a lot of these things are linked. Um, And trying to send me to websites that are not the equivalent of a PubMed database Mm. and that they see equivalence between their argument and my argument, I genuinely don't know what to do. And I, you know, I find that really, really difficult. Um, and I think both her and various other people that I've spoken to, including DJ, um, Ayodele, um, were saying that you, you have to accept that it's, I guess it's kind of a bell curve and that you leave the people at each end who are going to have really strong views and immovable views. And you concentrate on the people who are kind of like your floating voters mm-hmm. who want information, are concerned want to be you know reassured to a certain extent and I don't think I've always gone about it in the right way I think I know that I can be very heavy-handed and I don't think the answer is to insinuate that people are stupid I totally understand why people don't have the information Mm. and are confused or worried Um, and I want and hope to do a better job of trying to explain why 
science and evidence makes a stronger argument mm. than emotion and biased perspectives. Yes, it's very interesting. I've noticed this quite a lot on social media, in Facebook groups, on Twitter, etc. If somebody says, ask a question, for example, like, um, oh, I've noticed that my hair seems to be falling out a lot. Mm -hmm. Does anyone have any suggestions? And what I've noticed seems to be a thing is shouting one word answers. Biotin. <laughs> Ferritin levels. Not helpful. And I try to encourage people to like, if you are suggesting that, because mm -hmm. there's, there's validity in that, mm -hmm. perhaps you could qualify what you're saying. Yeah. Or, I mean, I don't often get into it, to be honest. But I've just noticed that as being a thing. And I just always think, if I'm asking, if, if I put a question out on my Facebook group, for example, if I'm like, blah, blah, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? I always, if, when I'm responding, I always imagine that that person's come up to me in the street and they've mm -hmm. said, oh, excuse me, do you have the time? And I sort of think, oh, I'm, do you know where the library is? And mm -hmm. I try to give them as much information as possible. I don't sort of say, left. Yeah. Um, that's definitely something that we're working against as well, isn't it? Yeah. Just the shouting of answers. Yeah, I think so. And also the fact that a lot of discussions are nuanced and there is not room for nuance in social media. Mm -hmm. There is room for being the first to respond. There is room for mm. kind of like staking your claim on certain, you know, ideas. And I do feel that, I mean, I guess less so in Instagram and more so in Twitter where you've yeah. got 240 characters or whatever, the, as there is not the space for intelligent debate and nuance and saying that this is the situation and there is some evidence that contradicts this, but the reason why I believe this is because of X, Y, and Z. Mm. And I think that is, that's part of the problem. Well, also part of the problem, going back to the, the um, clinical trial on breast cancer and parabens, mm -hmm. is the other one about... Um, or the same one, sorry, about the deodorant link, is that people are still quoting that, even yeah. though I think, how many years old is it now? It's like oh, a substantial amount of time. Now. Yeah. Yet I've heard people with huge audiences quote it and then promote a, a natural, yeah. in inverted commas, deodorant And I think this place. is the thing, like information is, and science is always evolving. Like science is always this is the story that we have created based on the information that we have to date. Mm. Uh, but scientists are flexible. They have to be. They, you know, they look at the evidence. And there is this whole thing about, you know, one day coffee causes cancer, the next day it cures it. Well, mm. actually, there is a huge amount of evolving information that we don't, you know, we're not at the point where we can definitively state X, Y, and Z. We can state that all of the evidence so far points us to this place. And... I believe that the evidence on the things that we're talking about are is mostly, you know, there and concrete and to be believed. But it's entirely possible that in three years we will know more about it. And, you know, that's kind of what I was talking about, about genetics and probiotics. Yeah. And, you know, the evidence at this point isn't strong enough to show us one thing, but in five years' time or ten years' time it may be. Mm. And these are, you know evolving times but the paraben story is not an evolving one the paraben story is based on one person i'm blaming gwyneth paltrow sorry i am <laughs> she's never gonna come after me but, but again but again not just not just because she's in the marvel movies but there's a part of me that thinks has she just tried all these things and felt really good afterwards and is it sinister but i know that you're no oh god 
Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I feel that it's very, science isn't sexy, you know. And if you've got an A-lister saying something with authority, mm. it's really difficult for the geeks in the back row to put their hands, actually, no, the geeks are always in the front row, aren't they? It's the sexy A-listers are at the back being cool. <laughs> But it's really difficult for the geeks in the front row to put their hands up and go, well, actually, no, that's not the case because blah, blah. Like, that's not sexy. Like, it's not. And we don't have that profile. And, you know, I think yeah. that's what's difficult. The stuff gets given authority because it's repeated and because it comes from people who have a profile which is not necessarily based on their knowledge of a certain area. Yes, okay. So to that end... If someone is listening to this and they think, right, I need to rejig where I'm getting my information from and I need to, like, are there any sources that you highly, highly recommend for people who want to think a bit, little bit more Claire Coleman-like? I mean, I always talk about PubMed, but I realise that that's really difficult because... What is PubMed? PubMed is essentially a library of um, papers, scientific papers, but then you then have to work out what journal it was in. And th these are peer-reviewed papers. Right. So listeners, just so you know, <laughs> recently somebody sent me um, a proper one of these um, papers. And I just sent the link to Claire and said, could you just give me a praise on what this Now, there, there is actually a book that I cannot remember off the top of my head, um, but I will give you the details so you can put it in the show notes about how to read a scientific paper. And There's a book on how to read it. Yeah. How long is that book? It's a, it's a, is it's, it a pamphlet it's not, or is it a book? It's somewhere between... It's kind of like a short play, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a novel. It's not a novel. It's, it's a not Cliff's a page turner. Notes. It's kind of a Cliff's Notes, yeah. Okay. Maybe we should get Cliff's Notes to do a version of it. But um, yeah, it's basically how to read and how to interpret a scientific paper. Um, and But then I get that's not for everyone. And I think the thing is, in exactly the same way that Jen Gunter said, it's about finding sources that are not trying to sell you anything finding mm. sources that don't have skin in the game that's why i yeah, really yeah. like um i was saying the beauty brains um podcast and the beauty brains website mm -hmm. and um, i think it's perry romanovsky is just great at sort of really delving into stuff and then explaining it yeah. i mean i think you know that's the sort of thing that i think is really valuable because I know that there are other sources such as the EWG Environmental Working Group, which a lot of scientists that I speak to do not see as a credible source. They right. see as a lobbying group, but it presents itself as a credible source. And I, I get that it's difficult. So, well, okay, rather than the sources then, because we all do it, I put on my, I turn on my phone and look at Twitter or I look at Facebook or whatever, and there's usually a link to... It's a clickbait headline, which mm -hmm. will be, is, the, is this health food actually rotting your stomach lining? Mm -hmm. And then because my, I have a, the attention span of a goldfish, I read the first two paragraphs and then I stop eating whatever it's told me to and I haven't read to the end. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously behavior that I need to change and I need to stop clicking on those headlines. So your advice to somebody who maybe does click on those headlines because they think oh, actually I want I, I don't want I don't want to do anything that harms me or my health or my family mm -hmm. if they read a headline see something that says click on me and the thing is like I don't know the five ways to beat cancer mm -hmm. sorry to make it so dramatic what would your advice to somebody be like if you were standing over them what would you do 
I would be like, right, okay, which website is this taking mm-hmm. you to? And is that a website that if you thought you had a problem, would you go to that journalist or would you go to a GP? Mm. Like, and I mean, yeah, we're talking about cancer rather than like, you know, food, whatever, or beauty stuff. But but it's relevant, because, but it is, yes, okay, so that's an extreme example. But I've also clicked on those things and I've bought supplements because... I've read something that scared me about, oh, maybe my liver's not getting enough this or maybe yeah. I'm not nurturing my lungs. I or... think it's about how much time, about how lazy we are, basically. Mm. And if you're going, if you're interested in something, read about it and read about it in more than one place. Mm. You know, by all means, read that these foods may be helpful, but then go on to a cancer website or and go and look at you know, what diets cancer websites recommend. Mm. They're not trying to sell you anything. They're trying to inform you. Mm. And like those, that's the only thing that I can really say. Like, don't take any one source as gospel. That's good advice. Don't take one source as gospel. Yeah. Especially if that source, and I know that this has come up actually with editor friends of mine who are now getting journalist copy, not your kind of editor, but like, um, getting journalist copy and going where did you get this information from and they're like oh, I read it in such and such an article and they're like but that journalist might not have done their due diligence in their research therefore you're now repeating something which yeah. isn't factually true and perpetuating that lie and that's become a real thing yeah that some editors that I know are having to because the volume of uh, editorial that people are having to create is mm-hmm. now massive yeah. online print wherever it might be and so people are just the shortest route to the information. Yeah. So it's a Google search and it's the first two hits. But yeah. if that information is not factually correct, mm-hmm. then you are then a lie and a falsehood or something wrong is being perpetuated. And that's where it gets dangerous. Yeah, it's true. And like given the volume or I mean, I suppose it's a little bit different because I work with editors who have worked with me for years and know how I work. And some will come back to me and ask me where I've got the information mm-hmm. from. But there are a couple of publications that I've started working for recently and in their commissioning form is, you know, we need you to essentially footnote anything that you're saying. If you're referencing a study, don't just click, don't just link to the newspaper that recorded, reported the study. We want to see the original study. Right. And I think that's the thing that I find really useful. And that's one of the things that I do mm. when you're reading through something. If it's referencing a study, go and look at the study, mm. you know, and if it's from a university, a lot of times you will find that there's a press release on it. You don't have to go and plow through the paper mm-hmm. yourself. Um, but trying to get back to the source of stuff, I think is a really good thing to do, whether you're a journalist or whether you're a reader. Mm. What a lovely place on which to end. Um, thank you so much. You're so welcome. I hope it has been useful and I genuinely mean it. I am so open to people asking questions and I hope that they feel they can ask questions of me and I will not be judgmental in my replies Mm. because knowledge is a wonderful thing and informed decision making is a wonderful thing Mm. and anything that I can do to facilitate that I am really happy to do brilliant and she is trust me because I whatsapp all sorts of things like Claire can you tell me what this means Claire is this deodorant going to make me poorly like literally she's very very good and she has never once given me the impression that I have bothered her and I know that so at features journal on twitter and instagram you're very good at getting back to people so we'll obviously put the link to Claire in the show notes and um I'll tag her on instagram and all that kind of stuff but Claire thank you so much for being so thorough and just setting me setting me straight on a load of stuff you're so welcome it's been a pleasure 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you found that conversation interesting. If you want to get in touch with the show, it's so easy. Just email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. Or if you prefer to DM me on social media, which I know a lot of you do, and I love getting those messages, I'm at Emma Guns on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to chat with me, but also maybe thousands of other listeners to this podcast, and why wouldn't you? I know that today's episode with Claire Coleman is going to generate a lot of chat in the Facebook forum. Then click the link in the show notes to join that Facebook group, answer the questions, agree to the forum rules, and thousands of us will welcome you with open arms and gifts of Keanu Reeves or Chris Evans, depending on what mood we're in. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.